Well, the silly season is upon us. Just as the year is coming to an end, COVID cases are on the rise, so we hope this finds you all safe and well. Today, Deb and Raf chat to NRL legend Wayne Pearce, OAM. From the field to the boardroom and a longtime close friend of Deb's, we chat to Junior about his lifetime fitness and health regime, his NRL career, leadership lessons, and how he and the NRL got the game back onto the field during the COVID pandemic. Wayne hosts the Clubs Without Borders Elite Leadership Program, and we'll be chatting to him about the self-awareness module, which he'll be running at the Cabravale Diggers on 7th of March. This program, also used by NASA, has received rave reviews from corporates, sports stars, and leaders from Australia and around the world. Of course, as we enter the new year, don't forget to enter your club in the Step Forward for Kindness Challenge on Sunday 27th of March. Deb launched this challenge on her 60th birthday with the hope that we might all take time out to realise life's too short not to connect and be kinder to each other. She's even more passionate about this cause, having lost another close and dear friend just weeks ago. All funds raised from this challenge go directly to support Gus Wallen's Gotcha for Life, which is focused on taking action in the wellbeing and suicide prevention space. You can register your team or sponsor Deb at www.stepforwardforkindness.com.au. Please welcome Deb and Raf. Hi, and welcome to the Clubs Without Borders Club Talk podcast. Well, another tough year, and it's hard to believe it's Christmas time already. But as we record this, COVID numbers are starting to go through the roof again. So we're thinking of you all. Let's hope it's a calm and peaceful Christmas and COVID disappears in 2022, but who knows? But it could always be worse, right? But we are thinking of you all, and we hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Before we go any further, hello to my co host, Mr. John Rafferty. How are you, Raff? I'm good, thanks, Deb. How are you? I'm well, thank you, and Merry Christmas. Really nice to talk to you. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, and I'm looking forward to speaking with Wayne Pierce. Raf, we've spoken over the years about having those few close friends that you could trust with your life, even though you might not see them all the time. And I know you and I have talked at various times over the years about how Wayne Pierce is one of those friends for me. I met Wayne over 20 years ago, and we immediately hit it off and have been friends ever since. For me, Wayne is one of a handful of people I trust with my life, and I can literally say that if I was ever in trouble or I needed anything, I know I could just ring him. As Gus Wallen would say, he's one of my gotcha for life mates. Wayne and I have spoken at council and other conferences together. We've worked a lot of charity events together over the years, and one close to our hearts was the Scott Gale fundraiser for motor neurone disease. But personally, Wayne's also spent a lot of time over the years with his met mum and dad, spent time with Chris, and used to go to Chris's school quite often. I do recall how amused my dad was when he actually played coach and referee for one of Chris's birthday parties in a touch football game and pretended to be talking to the video ref. It was a lot of fun at the time, and I know dad really enjoyed that day. Wayne was and still is a real role model for Chris and his friends, but also to many other younger NRL players and fans. We might not see each other all the time, but certainly when we do, nothing changes, and it's just a really special relationship, which I'm very grateful for. Wayne was an obvious choice to join Clubs Without Borders and runs our elite leadership program, which we'll talk to him about. Wayne's also a bit of a rock star. A lot of people may not know this, but Junior will be playing at my 60th birthday gig with our friend Mike Whitney. But Wayne's energy on stage, if you've never seen him sing and dance and play guitar, is absolutely electric. Just a quick story, backstory. 
Myself and Mal Meninga, we did a fundraiser for Scott Gale at the time. Mal and I got up and sang, you're the one that I want. And I can tell you that neither Mal or I could sing. We had the roosters get up and do the village people. It was a really, really good night. Les Kiss and those guys did the wiggles. But I remember when Junior got up that he could actually sing and play guitar. He was, he's got a really good voice. But what I cannot relate to, but I really admire, is Wayne's adherence to exercise and diet, which we'll talk to him about. So, Raf, just some of Wayne's achievements before we talk to him. I know you're excited to talk to him. Junior played 11 seasons for the Balmain Tigers from 1980 to 1990. Came captain in 1982, scored 175 points and 48 tries, played 193 first-grade games and 19 tests for Australia. Post-football, he coached the Balmain Tigers from 1994 to 1999 and was the inaugural coach of the West Tigers. Grand final appearances in 1988 and 1989, Kangaroo Tour in 1982, Rothmans Medal in 1985, the Hurry Sunderland Medal in 1984, Dally M Locker of the Year 1987 and 1988, rated number 99 in the Rugby League Top 100 Players in 1992 and was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for Services to Rugby League in 1988. Now, having said that, Wayne's had his fair share of adversities over the years, which we'll talk to him about. So please welcome my very dear friend and NRL legend, Mr Wayne Pearce. How are you, Junior? I'm good, thanks, Dan. Uh, good to be chatting to you and Raf. Merry Christmas. The hard-hitting questions, eh? We'll see what we can do for you, Wayne. No hard-hitting questions, Junior, but it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Good stuff. So, Wayne, so many things we could chat to you about, but let's start with your early experiences. You grew up in Leichhardt, and I recall you saying there was five of you living in a one-bedroom place in Balmain before your dad got a job looking after Leichhardt Oval. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, in my early years, we brought up in East Belmain and it was sectioned off part of a house and a lot of housing commission places in the area back in those days. And people were very working class origins, a lot of wharfies around the area at that time as well. But my dad worked on the council. He was a street sweeper, actually. Uh, had a horse and cart. A horse and cart. Wow, that's going back. He used to sit on a horse and cart and while he'd, um, he'd be shoveling crap out of the gutters into the back of the, the cart. So my mum worked in the Colgate Palmolive factory in Balmain at that time. And yeah, there was five of us. Mum, dad, three kids. We lived in a one-bedroom part of a house. And it was humble beginnings, but it taught you a lot of lessons. It taught you how to get on with people in close confines, that's for sure. It certainly would. And did you always follow the Tigers? And how old were you when you started playing footy, Wayne? Yeah, I always followed the Tigers back in Balmain in those days. That's pretty much what you did. And I started playing footy because the Tigers won the competition in 1969. So it was an amazing victory against South Sydney against all odds. And I was enthused. I'm the oldest of three boys, so I was enthused to play as my two younger brothers were. So my mum and dad signed us up with the local police boys club, Balmain Police Boys, and started playing footy at age 10. Fantastic. Now, Wayne, I know you lost your dad at an early age, which is, and losing your parents, I know losing my dad, it's tough for anybody to lose their parents, but it must have been particularly tough when you were so young. I mean, it was quite sudden. I was uh, 14 years of age and we went on our family holiday, a typical family holiday was for us was up to our grandparents' place, which was out a little town called Mumble, which most people probably got no idea where that is. Yeah, look, I get around the state a lot, Junior. I've never come across Mumble. Where's Mumble? 
Well, it's just up the road from Eucarina and before you get to Dripstone. So you're not you helping know. me, Wayne. I start, I don't know where that is either. <laughs> it's actually not far from Wellington. North. Okay, now we're getting closer. I certainly know where Wellington is. So we used to go uh, out there, stay at their place for, for a few weeks every summer. And this particular summer we went up there and he said the heat was getting to him. So he came back to Sydney, but uh, and he was going to come back and pick up in a couple of weeks, weeks back home. But he never came back. And he had a massive heart attack and, and died suddenly. And that was uh, quite traumatic at the time um, because, you know, we were a battling family anyway, financially. And he was being your dad, you know, you sort of, as a boy, at that age, you have a really strong connection, but he sort of moved on and, yeah, it was a bit of a setback, a huge setback for me at the time, which taught me a lot. And I was fortunate I had a mentor who came into my life, a friend of my dad's, by the name Mr. Kokas, who took me under his wing, gave me a lot of confidence. And anyhow, I sort of managed to, to navigate that particular period of my life and started sets of goals. And Footy rugby league was a pretty key part of me getting me back on track, really getting me focused and ultimately inspiring me to go on to bigger and better things. Yeah, because you've said to me a few times over the years, we've had conversations about when your dad passed away, you came off the rails for quite a period of time. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did go off, come off the rails. I started junior school and getting in with the wrong crowd, and it was it was a bit of a tough patch. But anyhow, I as I said, with through the assistance of. of a few people close to me managed to get back on track. And I think that's a really important lesson that I've learned is that we all at some point or other will run into difficult times in, in one shape or, or another. And um, to be able to have people around us to to help us navigate those rough waters is, is a pretty important thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Junior. I'm not one for necessarily talking about my personal life and my personal feelings either. But as I said in the introduction, you're one of the few people that I can pick up the phone to if I'm in trouble or I need to vent or I need to talk to somebody. And I think we all need that, you know, handful of people or those mentors or those people we can turn to and say anything to. And we all need that. We're happy to admit we all need that. Probably football, Wayne, would have been great at that time too where you have some teammates and people around you and it gives you something to sort of focus on at the same time and I, and and that's probably held you in good stead all through your life. Yeah, it did. I mean, you learn so many lessons from playing sport and team sport in particular at a young age. Um, it doesn't matter whether it is rugby league or whether it's cricket or Aussie rules or soccer or whatever it is. I mean, the, the team sport element is really important in terms of building a sense of camaraderie, um, allowing yourself to trust others that maybe you can't trust in other environments. And it teaches you discipline. It teaches you importance of teamwork. There's a whole lot of things that team sports do teach you. And I certainly learned a lot of lessons at a young age that have held me in good stead as I've gone through into the post-footy career and, and in business. So how old were you actually when you first played first grade? Wait. I debuted when I was 19 years of age, and back then rugby league was only part-time professional. You had to work a job. Like a lot of the sports back then, there wasn't the money in the game that there is now, so you had to balance a job with the sport. And when I left school, I went and did a science degree, studied psychology, did a diploma of education as well, and got a job as a school teacher. And the school teaching hours were great that worked in with rugby league because you know, we were training three or four times a week, starting at five o'clock in the afternoon and school hours finished a lot earlier than that. So it gave us time to get the training and it was really complimentary to my rugby league. And 
back then the footy on the field was different but the footy off the field was different too there was there wasn't the pressure that there is now in terms of example the social media pressure that's put on and in fact just the expectations that people have by and large not just footy players but young kids they tend to be wanting to compete against each other in terms of Instagram and a whole lot of things which put pressure on people. Well, it was still a transition, wasn't it, from really that more amateurish type sport into professional sport where the, the money that is there today, which allows players to be full-time, you know, whereas back then you had the job as a school teacher and the kids must have loved that they had an NRL player as their teacher. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. I was teaching high school and, you know, I come out of uni and, and I was you know, 22 years of age and was playing for Australia, actually, at that point. And it was a buzz and, and I, I really enjoyed my period of my life where I was teaching. And it was only two and a half years because it was too difficult trying to get time off for the representative games for State of Origins and tests and stuff like that. So I ended up getting out of teaching and moved into selling advertising for a television station for the Channel 10 network, actually, who were the broadcaster for rugby league. But yeah, the school teaching phase of my life was really enjoyable to the point where the business that I do now is not school teaching, it's actually teaching adults. And I just enjoy that teaching, coaching style of interaction with people. We have that in common, Junior. When I was at school, I was actually going to be an economics teacher. And that was the plan just to go to teacher's college. And I ended up going to university and ended up in banking, strangely enough. But I've gone full circle now. And as you know, I also do training of adults and I really enjoyed as well. So we got there eventually. We just took the longer route. So your first grade debut was against Parramatta in 1980, my dad's very favourite team. So you're up against the likes of Ray Price and Peter Sterling. That must have been exciting at the time. Yeah, no, it was. What happened was when I was 18 years of age, uh, played in a game against Queensland, New South Wales under-18s versus Queensland under-18s. And uh, I know you, you know Mal Meninga pretty well, and he was playing for Queensland. And I clashed heads in this game, and it was in the days of the bucket sponge back in the old days where if you had any sort of injury, they'd get, bring the bucket out and they'd sponge you down, and players would invariably stick that sponge in their mouth and suck on it and then spit the rest in the water. And that this same water would be used to sponge down other players who had wounds. So I had this cut in my eye and I sponged it down. And about six weeks after, I felt really weak this particular day getting out of bed, had absolutely no energy. And I went to the doctors and they did blood tests and I contracted a form of hepatitis called serum hepatitis, which is also called hepatitis B, which is where the bacteria or the virus has to get directly into the bloodstream. And I was out of action. I lost a lot of weight. I was really, really sick. And I couldn't play footy for pretty much a lot of the next season. So that knocked a big chunk out of my footy year season for that following year. And I just managed to get back on the field for the last few games and they pulled me up into the reserve grade was in the finals. So I was coming straight out of the juniors. They put me in the bench for the reserve grade and then played in a couple of games for the reserve grade off the bench. And then in that off season, the first grade coach, Dennis Tuddy, took me into the training squad for the first grade. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow, what am I doing here? I'm looking at all these first grade players that I looked up to. I hadn't even played a full game of reserve grade. And then what happened was in that off season, the first grade lock, Neil Pringle got really badly sick with some sort of virus and wasn't able to play the next season. So I actually started the season in first grade at the start of 1980 without even having played a full lower grade game. So it was pretty scary. And that was the game you're talking about against Parramatta. And it was 
a pretty handy side to come up against. But for me, uh, it was just great to be there and I sort of had to pinch myself to say, is, is this happening? Well, Junior, I've got to say, with great respect, you're not the biggest guy I've ever met. So a guy of your size lining up firstly against Mal Beniga would have been a bit intimidating too, I would have thought. Mal's a, a big fella. You know, I, I was played against guys a lot um, bigger than me, but, but but my game was built around preparation. It was built around fitness and it was built around power. So for me, it wasn't new to be playing against guys that are bigger than me. That's why I had to learn how to tackle well and tackle properly. So I focused a lot on that and I focused a lot on just the marginal gains, the one percenters, the little things that no one else was doing back then. Now everyone's doing them. But it's the little things in terms of diets, in terms of the mental preparations, in terms of the fitness training. Yeah, I sort of tried to stay ahead of everybody else by reading and researching. And I was fortunate I did the science degree because it gave me a really good understanding of the human body and anatomy. So that helped me stay ahead of the others as well. Well, Wayne, really you're ahead of your time for doing that at that era because a lot of other people weren't doing that at that era. So that's fantastic. But, you know, in 81, you were hurt again in a trial game, as I understand. Yeah, so I had a really good start to the year in 1980 and I had a big off-season preparation really getting ready for 1981 and the very first trial game we played against Cronulla and I went to try and put a, a big hit on a guy called Gavin Miller, as some of you may may remember. Well, he's, yeah, a, he's a real star player for Cronulla. Yep. And he went to palm me off and his thumb basically squashed my eyeball. By accident, just his thumb just squashed the eye and went down. I couldn't see out of it. The trainer came on, had a look at me and said, Pardon the word French. He said, oh, shit. He called the doctor on because my eye was basically just red and um, he couldn't see any white. Took me straight to the eye hospital. I had to lie there for two days with double eye pads on because they couldn't diagnose the injury until the blood cleared. So I had to just lie there and not move. And when the blood cleared, the news was that I detached my retina. So I then had to have an operation and I had the operation and the operation was successful. So then I did the rehab, which was basically just resting and not doing too much for a few weeks. And anyhow, I was out for about four months out of the game, and then I came back and played the back half of the 81 season. With such a serious eye injury, Wayne, it takes a lot of resilience to keep playing. So what would you have for listeners to understand what enabled you to keep going after such a serious eye injury? Uh, I think I'm fortunate and unfortunate. I'm a big believer that if you can work through a setback, it gives you more confidence to work through another setback. And I mean, the biggest setback I suffered at a young age was when my father died suddenly. So for me to be able to work through that and get my life back on track after having fallen off the rivals, that gave me confidence that I could push through anything really. And bear in mind that prior to the eye injury, I not only had my father died, but I actually suffered from that hepatitis B episode where I basically lost about 15 kilos. And I was basically just skin and bones when, because you don't feel like eating when you had that. So, and I had to work back from that as well. So, I'm a big believer that all of us are incredibly resourceful, but we buy into the negative thoughts that can creep up understandably when things go wrong. But if we work through and push through and just find the strength to overcome that initial setback, whatever that form may be. And you gain confidence from that. The next setback's nowhere near as bad. The setback's after that's nowhere near as bad. And, and I come to appreciate that anything's doable, anything's recoverable if you have the right mindset. Now, in 1981, Frank Stanton came to your club as coach. And at that time was the Australian coach. 
Then in 1982, you were named in the Kangaroo Tour, which is such a big honour, enormous honour. How was that announcement for you and how did you find out? Yeah, so what happened was our first grade side that year, the Tigers, we didn't make the finals, but the reserve grade team was in the grand final and we went back to the club on grand final night. When I say we, uh, all of the club went back there to support the reserve grade team and the Kangaroo Touring Squad was announced that night. I didn't have any idea that I was even on the shortlist. Frank Stanton, who was the club coach, who was the Kangaroos Touring Coach, didn't say a word to me in the lead up to it. So I didn't think I was a chance. I booked a trip. The end of season trip was to Hawaii and I already booked and paid for the trip to Hawaii. So I was going to Hawaii and Frank came over and whispered to me halfway through this night that the team had just about to be announced and he said that I'd made the tour and it just blew me away. I I honestly had no idea. So I had to sell my ticket to the Hawaii (laughs) trip, Uh, but I booked a room on the kangaroo tour with my roommate, Peter Sterling. So that was an interesting exercise in itself. But that's how I found out. It was the most amazing experience, that kangaroo tour. It taught me so much. And I feel sad for the players nowadays that they don't have that type of experience because it was 11 weeks tour. Uh, There were, I think, 22 matches played on the tour. They take 28 players away. The squad sorts itself out into the kangaroos and the emus, uh, which is on the emblem. The kangaroos are the, the, the test team, the emus are the, the second string guys, the guys that are there to filling in or play games against the club sides and stuff like that. So it was a really wonderful experience. So you said you roomed with Sturlow. With great respect, Junior, I would have thought you would have stood out as being a little bit different back then. As you said, you were ahead of the game, but your fitness ethic and particularly the fact that you didn't drink at all might have stood out against some of those other players as being a bit different. I never started drinking alcohol pretty simply because my dad was an alcoholic and I think that helped contribute to the fact that he died quite young. So I had a genuine reason to not drink. And for me, I didn't even give it any second thoughts. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite interesting being on a tour with, you know, your teammates that, that all drink. So, I mean... I go out with the guys and and I can tap into the atmosphere so they think I'm drunk anyway. So anyone that's been out partying with me would sort of think the same sort of thing, I think. But, yeah, it was was just a a great experience all around. That Kangaroos team were known as the Invincibles because didn't you play 20-plus games undefeated? Yeah, we were the first touring squad of any code, I think, uh, certainly Australian squad, to go on an extended tour and win every single match. Uh, and we're certainly the first rugby league touring squad to come back undefeated. And it was phenomenal. Some of the victories that we had you know, were really big scores. There were probably only two close matches in the whole 22 games. So it was just one of those things where it was just, uh, yeah, I, I can't talk too highly about the experience. It was just amazing. So can I ask about your preparation for those games? I know that you meditate now and you have for all the years that I've known you pretty much. Did you meditate then, back in those days? Is that how you got ready for the games? No. No, I I resisted meditation for many, many years. I prepared in a whole lot of other areas and were really clinical and detailed around the preparation of a whole lot of areas. The meditation piece was something I resisted because I really just couldn't get into it. And then it was only about 15 years ago that I experienced a different form 
of the meditation, which was something that really resonated with me. And for me, the benefits that I could feel were really quite significant. So for me, that is now part of my ritual when I get up every morning. But back then, no, I, I didn't meditate back then on that tour. And I don't think Sterling would have let me anyway, man. I used to get up in the morning and do the skipping. And um, it was only about a week and a half into the tour that I came home one day and my skipping rate was cut up in about 30 pieces. I took the message. <laughs> well, when you were so far ahead of the others in how you used to prepare anyway, Wayne, you know, like you were known for it, you know, and, and people talked about that for years later about how you used to prepare before games, which really has led to what the teams do today. I actually used to write diets for a lot of the players from other clubs. Now, the word got around that I was quite fanatical about studying all this stuff, and there was no, there was no real science behind it, the preparation from the conditioners back then, other than the physical preparation. They were very good at the physical side, the running and drills. But the dietary side of it, there really wasn't much awareness. There was no dietitians at the clubs or anything like that. So yeah. I sort of wrote up quite a few programs for a lot of the players at different clubs. But nowadays, it's sort of mainstream. And pretty much those marginal areas, those marginal gains areas are the, are the real focus of all the professional clubs now and, and, and the conditioning, strength and conditioning staff are right into that. Well, it really was back then a one cap fits all, wasn't it? You know, like everybody got trained the same. You know, whereas now it's much more specific for different positions of where people play, you know, and for what their needs are and their recovery needs as well. Because yeah, yeah well, well, we recover time. Much more exactly than right. Exactly right, Ralph. I mean, pretty much all the sports were the same. And, you know, nowadays you've got the GPS and you've got a whole lot of testing that's very, very specific and training programs that are tailored for different positions which is the way it should be, and also training programs that are tailored for different age players as well. You know, if you've got a player that's 34 playing, that they don't need to be doing the stuff that a that a rookie 19-year-old coming in is going to be doing. Certainly, in terms of the physical damage that their bodies have taken, that the young players haven't. So, there's a lot of tailored programs now, which is the way it should be, and that's the professional nature of the game that we're in. And it's probably why players are lasting longer in the game, isn't it? Because they actually are getting trained differently so that they can actually get there. Whereas when you turn 30 plus years ago, you get trained the same as an 18, 19 year old, and then you wouldn't have the legs and you'd be too tired with the game. But also now they've got interchange. So that also helps as well to, to help that. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Beth. I mean, that there's the rules of the game that have facilitated the longevity, but there's also the training programs and the nature of the training. And one of the most difficult things as you get older as a rugby league player, is the off-season training. It's the really difficult part of the year to navigate. The playing itself for older players is as much fun as it was when I was younger, but it's, it's those hot days, humid days, where you're doing the intense training that's the part of the season that burns players out. But nowadays, the coaching staff are a lot smarter about the way they address that, and that's part of the professionalism. Yep. And then in 86, the kangaroo test, you were hurt again, why? Yeah, so there was a kangaroo touring squad to be picked in October of that year. And in the middle of the year, we had a test series, three test series against the Kiwis. And in the third test playing at Brisbane, I picked up a loose ball and took off. And there were two guys, Olsen Filipano and Mark Graham, two of the biggest guys on the field. They grabbed me from behind or from the side, actually, and jumped on me. And I fell on my knee and I just couldn't get up, my knee 
just had no strength in it at all. So I went off the field. Uh, the doctor thought it was a cartilage injury. It felt a lot more serious than that. Anyhow, cut a long story short, I had to have a, a knee reconstruction, which ruled me out of the, the kangaroo tour at the end of the year. So that was really devastating for me, particularly the way I was ruled out because the way I tore the cruciate ligament was a really rare way of tearing it. Normally, you would tear the, the ligament in the middle. My cruciate was actually torn off the bone with a bit of bone, which is technically called an avulsion fracture, which is a bit different to a tear. And uh, my doctor, Dr. Merv Cross, the leading knee surgeon in the country, patched it up. And when I came to, he said to me that there may be a chance that I could make the kangaroo tour. And he asked me how long it was down the track. And I said, oh, it's about 12 weeks. He said, I think you might be right to train in about 10 weeks if you do all the rehab that I propose. So I did all this rehab. And anyhow, to cut a long story short, I started training with the trainer squad. I was leading the runs home. The rugby league told me I had to go and do a physical test fitness test before the team was selected, which never really happened before. Pretty much the standard procedure was you get picked in the side and then you do the fitness test. So they made me do this fitness test beforehand for whatever reason, and I got ruled out. And this was against the advice of my specialist and the fact that I was leading the runs in the training. So it just didn't make sense to me, but it was very disappointing and I didn't make the tour. And why it was really sad was from my perspective was because I had such an amazing time on the previous tour. 82 when I went away. And these kangaroo tours used to only happen every four years. So in 1988 and 1989, both years, Balmain and yourself made the grand final, which is a great achievement in itself. I think 88 was against Canterbury, but certainly I know that 1989 was against the Raiders because I was a big Raiders fan and a Mal Meninga fan, as you know. But I've got to say, at the end of that game, and you were leading against the Raiders and then the Raiders came back and won at the last minute as they tend to do many times over the years. I think the whole country wanted to come out seeing you at that. There was a last shot there after the game where you were sitting on the field. And I think the whole country, including myself, and I didn't even know you back then, wanted to give you a hug. And I remember Mal saying to me one day that he almost, I raised it with him and he said, I almost felt sorry for him that day myself. In 1988, we made the grand final, as you sort of said. But we came from a playoff situation. We finished level with another team, Penrith it was, and we had to play off a midweek game to qualify for the finals. And then we won all the games to get through to the grand final. And in 88, we can't repeat us in the grand final. But it was just a great experience to make the grand final, particularly from the position that we were in. And then 89, we were the first team into the grand final. We qualified first. And then Canberra won their playoff to get into the grand final and we were leading 12 two at half time and what happened was in the second half Canberra scored not long before full time and forced extra time ended up scoring and beat us in extra time so it was a really difficult way to lose the match and a great side went on to win grand finals after that as well but for me it was it was yeah heartbreaking because we were, we were so close but just didn't quite get there but I'm just glad that I've had the opportunity to play in grand finals because there's plenty of great players that have been around that just never even got to play in a grand final. Do you remember seeing that game, Raf? Did you catch that particular game? I do remember that game and probably one of the worst things for Balmain was is that at the time was the commentators and everyone were talking about how they took players off too early and they wanted to try and blame the coach and everyone else when really unless you're out there and you really know how it's played, it's pretty hard to – and people can make comments from the side, can't they, Wayne? And that must have been pretty hard for you guys to take as well. 
Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, you know, Warren Ryan was a great coach, but he would acknowledge that it was probably the wrong thing to do when he took Steve Roach and Paul Searn and two of our internationals off halfway through the second half and put some defensive players on. So theoretically, that would work great. But when you take two of your internationals off, it sort of gives the opposition a lift. But even great coaches like Warren, you know, can sometimes make mistakes as well as us players make mistakes. It's just the nature of the game. And that's, that's what's the great thing about sport, professional sport, is that it's so unpredictable. And, you know, it's one of the things that people still keep tuning in to watch on television uh, because, you know, it's that energy, it's that competition, and it's the unpredictability. You just don't know what's going to happen. And look, it was the try from Ferguson, wasn't it, that tied the match that was really quite unpredictable in the way he zigzagged to run to the line anyway. So you've got all those sorts of factors that go into the game. Yeah, and we had chances that went begging. You know, Benny Elias had a field goal that hit the crossbar. Yes, I remember Benny's ball hitting the crossbar. I dropped the ball. We had a wing around unopposed. Gary Jack never drops a ball. At fullback, dropped the ball and gave Canberra back the possession where they scored from that. You know, it was just, there was things just, just happened. So I know they happened. Not meant to be. <laughs> exactly, unfortunately. You know, just after that time, you know, then that Super League came in in the mid-90s, didn't it? And how did that impact and affect you? Yeah, so Super League came in the end of 95. I think all the signing of players all happened. And it was all, for those people who don't know, it was all to do with rugby league television rights because there was Optus that was looking to start up a pay television channel, and then there was Foxtel. On the Optus side was Kerry Packer, and Kerry Packer had the rights to the ARL, which is now the NRL. And because if you don't have sport for pay television, then you're not going to be successful. And Rupert Murdoch, he was on the Fox side, but he didn't have any content in terms of rugby league. So the Fox side of the equation went about signing all of these players up to basically in the dark of night, going to their houses, signing all the players up. To cut a long story short, there were two competitions running a Super League competition and ARL competition for, not sure whether it was one or two years now. The two year years, I think it was. And then Kerry and Rupert shook hands and got it back together and we now have the NRL. So that was a very dark period in the game. It was a period in the game where players were shifting clubs for extra money and fans were being disillusioned even the players themselves and the coaching staff like myself were disillusioned as well you know it was a very dark period in the game and a lot of greed around and i'm glad that we've well and truly moved beyond that to a period now where the game is flourishing and very stable again you coached new south wales from 1999 to 2001 and of course the new south wales clean sweep 3 nil in 2000 so, you know, your leadership role as opposed to being a player was really prevalent on this period and you'd clearly build a high-performing state origin team. Yeah, so it's a big difference between club coaching and state of origin coaching. So club coaching is about embedding a culture where you're giving the players a lot more belief in themselves. You want to win a competition, you've got to develop skills and patterns of play and so on and so forth. But state of origin, and I was fortunate that I played state of origin so I understood it intrinsically, is very much about the spirit. You don't have to teach the player skills because you're picking the best of the best. What you've got to do is you've got to give them a framework, some game plans, and basically get them understanding each other because they come from all different clubs and you've got to get them connecting in a very short period of time. You've only got them for, well, nowadays it's eight days, but back then you only had them for four or five days in camp before you play a match. So 
it was challenging, but it was incredibly satisfying. And that series in 2000, where we won 3 0, was just unbelievable. In the final match, you know, we, we scored 56 points, 156 16. And I think it's the highest score in origin still. And it's the last time that New South Wales has won 3 0. So it was a great experience. I, I think Ryan Girdle scored 32 points or something like that individually. So it was a wonderful experience. And it's something that I know when I see the players on that side, they still talk about how great the energy was, the vibe was. And then in 2000, you were the first head coach of the new joint venture, West Tigers. That must have been an interesting time when you've got two clubs, but with different cultures trying to be bringing them together. Yeah, it was a challenge from the perspective of we had two different cultures, so the West culture, Tigers culture. Fortunately, the two cultures were anchored in working class origins, so there was a lot of synergy there. But both clubs were disappointed and agitated that they didn't have the finances to continue and thrive individually. And post the Super League war, there was money on the table to encourage clubs to merge because they had to reduce the number of teams in the competition because there were two competitions. They had to get rid of some or merge them to bring the competition down to a viable number for a single competition. And the Tigers, Balmain Tigers, where I've been coaching, we forecast looking forward financially were in a very dubious position. So the joint venture concept, a merger with Western Suburbs was something that was attractive. And from a West perspective, it was attractive as well. Given that I was very much aware of the financial situation, I was highly supportive of the joint venture because ultimately the club could have folded if a situation such as the joint venture wasn't presented and it was at the opportune time that it came around. Very good. So, Wayne, the West Tigers joint venture, as you said, was a success, yet the Northern Eagles, which was Manly and North Sydney, failed in the end. In our industry, we've got a lot of clubs that have amalgamated for the same reasons that you've talked about, many financial and the increasing competition in our industry. Many have amalgamated quite successfully and others not so much. So what was the differences you saw as to why the West Tigers were successful but the Northern Eagles failed? I think it's probably the same in the club industry, really. You need to get people on board. You need to get people to buy in uh, and you need to get, get people to commit. And if you've got different cultures, I wasn't privy to the dynamic that was going on at Manly or Norse, but looking from the outside, they were quite different cultures, I think. And that in itself is a huge challenge. And in business, it's a huge challenge as well. And if there's power plays that are happening and they are undermining the progress going forward, then it's not going to work. And at the Tigers, you know, we had some challenges and there were certainly people in powerful places that didn't really want that joint venture to happen. But fortunately, there was enough people that really got on board and wanted it to go ahead. We launched the club in 2000 and five years later under Tim Sheens, Five years, not a long time to take a club from being a newly formed club to winning a competition. It was a fantastic achievement in 2005 to win the premiership. And hopefully they can be competitive again sometime soon. So, Wayne, how did you evolve into corporate leadership? Yeah, so, I mean, I've been involved in speaking and 
running motivation programs for kids and all that sort of stuff for a long period of time. When I was playing, I was going around to schools. I was employed. When I got out of teaching for three years, I went around to schools. I did 500 schools in three years. And basically the messages were around the value of sport, why you should play sport and why rugby league is a great sport to be involved with. So I started sort of speaking back in those days. But when I was working as a sales executive selling advertising subsequent to that, I understood and saw a huge opportunity at some point for someone in the teamwork space because teamwork in the business world is suboptimal, let's put it that way. In most organisations, there is massive upside, which is not addressed because a lot of people in the corporate world have never been exposed to the fundamentals of what makes teams great. So when I was coaching, I was really conscious in the back of my mind that I didn't want to coach forever. I wanted to coach for a finite period and try and get the Tigers competitive, which was a huge challenge in itself. But what I did was I trialed and tested a whole lot of different techniques. Some worked, some didn't work. And then at the same time, I was actually inquiring from other disciplines like the Army, Fire Brigade, just where there was great examples of teamwork, basically looking at what makes great teams and what makes great team leaders. So when I finished coaching, I had this idea that I wanted to work as a consultant in business, taking the ideas about what makes teams great and what allows great team leaders to develop great teams. And then that was sort of the origins of it. And I've been working in that space now for 20 years. I love it. There's huge opportunities still out there because teamwork is without doubt and the research supports this the biggest single leadership competency gap that we have in australia and that's building effective teams and yeah so for me i I just like working in that space it's a great opportunity but i get a lot of satisfaction from helping business leaders across the country and i do a bit of work in southeast asia when the borders open i'll be back up there again singapore and hong kong so it's just really enjoyable And you're certainly incredibly impressive in that corporate leadership space. But I know you used those leadership skills when you were the commissioner for the NRL, but in particular when COVID shut down the game, you were instrumental in the NRL being the first sport in the world to get back on the field during the COVID project that I know you called Project Apollo. So, Raf, you'd recall the press was saying that the NRL were delusional, they were out of touch, it was on the front page of every paper. Yet when I saw Junior interviewed, I remember thinking, don't underestimate him. Yeah, yeah. So it was um, it was a huge shock to Australia, but to, to us at the NRL when we were, after two rounds of the competition, the advice from our expert epidemiologist who was advising us of the progression of the virus, advised us, when I say us, the commissioners of the NRL, which I'm one of those, advised us that she couldn't support the competition continuing. So we had to postpone the competition and there were in excess of $15 million being lost directly from broadcast revenue per week when that happened. So if we didn't get the game back up and running at the earliest opportunity, then we were going to get ourselves further and further in a hole. So a few days after that shutdown, I had a conversation with our chairman, Peter Volandis, and he asked me, would I take it upon myself to get a team together to restart the competition. I knew nothing about public health. I knew nothing about 
infectious disease, but I didn't know how to organise a team. I didn't know how to lead a team and got a team together and with the assistance of a whole lot of people that were seconded either on the team or were influenced by members of the team, and I called that Project Apollo, then we managed to get the competition up and running around about eight weeks later. And it was, as you said, it was like the first pretty much middle of COVID. It was the first sport in the world to be able to do so. And we had to influence a lot of stakeholders in the government, in the corporate world, in the broadcast, the partners and so on. And it was an exercise that had military precision. Uh, And the reason it had military precision was because one of the experts on the Project Apollo team is a Professor Heslop, Associate Professor Dave Heslop, who was a Special Forces soldier toured in Afghanistan and Middle East. And he was brilliant in terms of the way that he was able to balance the risk against the upside to guide us to getting back on the paddock faster pretty much than anybody else. And how many people were on that team, Wayne? Uh, The core team, there were 10 people on the core team. And every one of those people were selected because they were able to influence a particular stakeholder group or they had specific expertise like Professor Heslop in a specific area. And then underneath them, there was a whole lot of other people in the management at the NRL that took over the running of the project once we got the game up and running. So I came to appreciate that people talk about crisis management and we didn't require crisis management because crisis management occurs when you have a situation that you've dealt with before and these are the protocols that you need to follow. But crisis leadership is quite different. Crisis leadership is really when there's been never a situation like this before, there's a whole lot of leadership principles and levers that you need to pull. And that's what I came to understand was the really critical piece. So I was involved in this crisis leadership piece, which then we then set a whole lot of protocols that then become the crisis management phase, which is the phase that we're in at the moment, even though we restarted the competition in a few months, it'll be two years since that, but we're still in crisis management mode at the moment. It's interesting, Wayne, isn't it? Because everybody's looking for leadership when you get into that situation too, when it hasn't been before, because there's been no rule book for it. You know, so it's not like people have been there before and they've dissected it and gone through things of how we can do things better in the future. It's on the go at the same time. So you've always got to manage what risk is the best opportunity. Well, Ralph, there is a rule book for it because I actually drafted up a workbook, the 12 leadership lessons from Project Apollo, actually. But you're right. I couldn't go to a, a source to sort of say, oh, what's all the stuff that we need to do? But subsequent to that, you know, I believe there's these really 12 key principles that Each of them are really, really important. And it's something that until this situation, the scenario has come around, and it's it's going to be here for a while yet, that's for sure. There wasn't any set of rules or principles that's quantified anywhere that you could go to and sort of say, oh, yeah, I need to get this off the shelf. Exactly. And and look, you've got the media who deal a bigger play in it now, you know, where it doesn't matter what people do on one side, they want to bag you on that side. And then when you change and do what they do the other way, they want to have a go at you for changing to do it. So it's really difficult in those situations where, you know, if you go back to 1920 when they had the Spanish flu and the pandemic, you didn't have the same issues with the media that you have now. No, that's right, Raph. And the other thing too is that there was a massive scare campaign happening to get people to comply. And that was what a lot of people bought into, and this was driven by the media as well. A lot of people bought into that, and that's why they thought that we were delusional 
to think that we could get back as quick as we got back. But we weren't dealing with the hysteria and the opinions that were being put out there. We were just dealing with the facts. And the facts, as we saw it, with the experts we had working with us, told us that we were actually going to get back. And we stayed focused on that need to get back. And it was really imperative that we got back sooner rather than later because we have an internal counselling hotline for all our players and staff. That increased massively within two weeks of the competition shutting down because if I paint the picture, these players have gone through, and I talked about how difficult the off-season training is with the heat and all that sort of stuff, and they're big fellas. They go through all this punishing off-season training. Then they get to the part where they start playing games, which is the most enjoyable part, and they're all feeling really good about it. And then after two games, the competition shut down and they're not allowed to go out. They're locked up in, in their homes. It's a very psychologically difficult position for them to be in. Those lockdowns are very difficult for everybody, but our players and staff, and particularly our players, really struggle mentally in terms of their well-being in that space. So that's the other reason why we set this deadline and we're really clear about this deadline, and it was the deadline that, that they could focus on. And it was that light on the hill where everybody could see it and had a point of relativity where they could sort of say, yes, we're getting closer to this. Yeah, we spoke to Gus Woolland about the mental health issues and are you okay for the same reasons because the COVID pandemic has definitely presented a lot of issues in that area for people, particularly along the lines you said, you know, with how players would have felt, you know, when they were into the fun time of playing football and then all of a sudden they can't play. So it's all that build-up. They've done all that hard work and that training and then they're also thinking about what fitness they're going to lose when they can't actually train and get out and do that as well. And we also know how good physical exercise is for the endorphins and to keep a healthy body and healthy mind at the same time. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it was quite traumatic for them, as it was for so many other people that may have been in situations where they lost their jobs, where they were unsure how they're going to pay for their mortgages. And yeah, I really feel for so many people through the last couple of years that have struggled And we just need to come together as a society and support each other and help each other because that's the way we're going to get through this. So let's talk discipline. Rath, as you know, my favourite restaurant's in Malaya and I've been going there since I was about 25, which was more than a couple of years ago. And I've been with you many, many times. So just after I met Junior, we went to the Malaya and the manager, Trey, said to me, as he usually does, Deb, do you want the usual And I was about to be very rude and just say yes. And I thought, well, I better just check with Junior because I didn't know him that well in those days. Is there anything you don't eat? To which he turned around and he said, no meat, nothing too spicy and no alcohol. And I remember Tree's answer was, well, mate, I better get you a table with somebody else. So to this day, I'm in awe of how disciplined you are. Certainly Raf and I know what we should be eating but uh, I'll speak on behalf of both of us and say we probably not. And I'm currently setting goals before my 60th birthday bash in April. So let's see how I go with that. But uh, how do you stay so disciplined, Junior, and how can I learn that skill, my friend? In my view, it's, it's a matter of just getting into a habit. It's all, it's all habits. We're creatures of habit. If we start down a path and we feel good about what we're achieving as we start walking down that path, then it's easier to keep walking down that path. So for me, I don't even think twice about what I eat diet-wise. I don't think twice about alcohol. Exercise is just part of what I do. The mental meditation 
work I do. It's just a habit. And you've got to start small and you've got to understand and acknowledge the progress and the rewards because that's when you get that dopamine kick, that natural dopamine kick from that sense of progress. It doesn't matter whatever you're doing. It's just small steps. You've heard it before, but it's absolutely true. And it doesn't matter whether it's diet or whether it's exercise or whether it's playing a a musical instrument like a guitar. You've you've got to just start with the basics, get some progress, and that progress is going to be self-fulfilling. I'm not helping you too much there because there's no magic tonic or magic pill you can take. Or actually, the, the magic tonic is absolutely is there, and that's called dopamine. But you've got to get that naturally into the system by acknowledging the progress that you're making. Yeah, so Wayne, you've set up the Elite Leadership Program with Clubs Without Borders, and disappointingly, COVID put a spanner in that schedule for last year. But this program will be perfect for clubs in 2022 in helping them lead their teams effectively in this ever-changing post-pandemic environment. You know, you focus on the skills and tools needed to build a high-trust culture and in turn producing high-performance teams. I know Deb and I agree that a high-trust culture is critical for business success. So how does that whole leadership program work in that area? Yeah, well, the work that I've been doing in terms of the trust space, I've been working on that for 20 years. But back in 2012, Google launched a study into what makes teams great. They spent millions of dollars trying to improve the teamwork across their business because it was critical to outcomes in their business. So they thought, well, hang on, let's do a data-driven study of what makes teams great. So they looked at 180 of their business teams across the globe, and they split these teams up into teams that were high-performing versus the teams that weren't high-performing. And they wanted to identify what were the common factors with the high-performing teams. And there was only one universal factor that stood out common to all high-performing teams that wasn't there with the underperforming teams. And that was that the high-performing teams had a culture of psychological safety. They call it psychological safety. And basically, that's the ability for people within that environment to express themselves authentically without fear of any repercussions, adverse repercussions. And it basically equates to, to a trusting environment, yeah? So that was the critical piece that supported exactly what I believed and what I've been teaching for a long period of time prior to that. So the program that I've developed for teamwork and developing and improving teamwork is very much anchored in this trust piece, this psychological safety piece, but it's also talks to a model called, I call the team ignition model, which is the model I use developed. It's a framework where you've got to also, apart from the trust and the psychological safety, you've got to connect a sense of purpose to a sense of the impact that people have in their jobs towards that purpose. You've got to have clear expectations. You've got to create accountability within that workplace environment. And you've got to have a sense of people energising each other and being optimistic. And that is very much anchored in the type of people that you recruit into the team. Too often, people recruit the most talented person onto a team. And I know from my experience in sport that that's fraught with danger if you don't also factor in character aspects and personality aspects of that individual because someone can be a really super talented person, but if they're selfish, not a team player, for example, then you're going to be paying a price. 
So there's a number of things that we'll be covering in the program, but we start with the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are that ability to build high levels of trust, establish a sense of purpose, and create a culture of accountability. Yeah, and I understand the leadership program is the same one NASA uses to evaluate astronauts, which would be quite understandable when you, you think about how you've got to trust each other when you're out in space like that to ensure that you all do the right thing to be able to return. You know, it's a, a little bit different from the autocratic days, you know, when you first started playing football, Wayne, and when the coach said jump, you said how high. So yeah. it's a whole different way, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, the NASA program was built around a skill set called process communication and it's a phenomenal skill set that we talk about that we cover that is basically a way of identifying the different types in people when i say different types because you hear people talking about different types of people but it's more accurate to talk about the different types in people because every one of us has six different dimensions six different clusters of behavior inside of us but for most of us there's one or two that are really strong and they present to the world in terms of someone being compassionate, for example, in one case, or someone being logical and rational and a good problem solver and over here, and this person over here is a bit of a fun type person. So what that allows us to do when we actually understand the skill set is how do we deal with and interact with these people differently to get the most out of them? What motivates them? Because they're all motivated by different sets of psychological needs. So what this skill set teaches is an emotional intelligence skill set that in my experience, and I am well-read and well-versed and do a whole lot of programs myself in terms of upskilling, this is by far the best I have ever come across. And I did three years of undergrad psychology at university and I learned more in this particular course in three days than I learned in, in all my studies at uni. So around behaviour, human behaviour. So. That's the sort of stuff that we'll be covering. But the key to leadership, in my view, the key to being a good leader starts with self-leadership. It's about you understanding yourself. Because if you don't understand yourself and you don't understand what derails you, you don't understand how to leverage your strengths, you don't understand how you are perceived in terms of your interaction with other people, then it's very difficult for you to lead other people. So self-leadership starts with understanding yourself first before you need to worry about how can I engage and motivate these other types of people. So, Raf, as you know, I've done day one of this program with a number of Sydney clubs already. And just before I did it, I actually was having coffee with Meninga and he actually said to me how much he enjoyed it and just how outstanding the day was and the program was. So day one looks at a deep understanding of personality traits, their psychological needs and how to manage those personalities in a healthy way. And I have to say, initially, when I first did it, I thought, well, it's just going to be just like this training. And then I had to answer what I thought, Junior, I have to say, were rather odd questions. And I remember thinking, how are these questions going to access my personality? And I started to doubt it straight away that night. But I have to say, the results I got back were absolutely amazing. I received a detailed self-awareness report and then a separate leadership report, which is more relevant than any course I've ever undertaken, Raf. And as you know, I've done hundreds of courses over the years and I've got lots of quals behind my name. But I've got to say, this was one of the most enjoyable, enlightening days that I've had in my career. Yeah, thanks, Deb. And uh, when you talk about Mal Meninga, when he came along, he said all coaches should do this. 
because it helps you understand the players so much better. Mel's been around a long time. He's coached Australia, he's coached Queensland, he's coached club level. And he was like me. He's like me and, and can see the value of this, not in terms of just dealing with other people, but also you understanding yourself. And then the extension of that is then how can you get the most out of other people? And, you know, I've, I've done a whole lot of the other types of skill sets like DISC, but this one's a lot more. DISC is a good entry point for some people, but this one's much more advanced in terms of the fact that you're dealing with and, and understanding distress behaviours. And every one of us has a predictable pattern of distress that we will go into on a regular basis if we don't get our psychological, specific psychological needs met. And that predictable pattern of distress will undermine the outcomes that we all achieve. And that is not in our best interests. Well, Wayne, obviously the program is more about looking after leaders, isn't it? Whereas with DISC, it's about understanding the people who work for you and the different personality types you have so that you're not treating them all the same. You know, whereas no, no, this is, this is exactly the same. It's the same thing too. So this particular one was validated by NASA, actually. NASA did the work. They took on board Google. Dr. Tavy Kaler was the guy who developed this. It originated in psychotherapy. So the whole skill set originated in psychotherapy. And because he was so accurate in terms of his ability to predict human behavior and which people were going to have meltdowns under pressure, the psychologist at NASA clinics would ask him to go into the recruitment interviews to provide his feedback. And because he was so accurate in terms of the feedback that he gave on individuals as far as recruiting was concerned, NASA invested a lot of money to develop a profiling tool and validate that to use for recruitment of astronauts. And that's the same document that is used to support the skill set in the course. So it's, there's a lot of work done behind it. So, Raph, the entire program's moduled over five days, but Junior's tailored this program for the Australian club industry, and I just can't tell you how impressive it is. And it's just so important that we help promote these types of leadership skills in these unprecedented times of change and competitive and legislative pressures that our club's going through. So Junior's repeating day one, the self-awareness module, which we're running at Cabravale Diggers on the 7th of March. So we invite all club leaders, including SelfRap, to enrol in this one-day module and that's where you'll get this self-awareness report and then a separate leadership report. So you get both reports. Many senior corporate CEOs and sporting elites have raved about the benefits of the program, so we're very excited to offer it to the industry. And Junior Christopher is enrolling in this one, so he's really looking forward to doing day one of your program as well, so he's very excited. Your boy, your big boy, Chris, uh, looking forward to, to working with him on the day. I'm looking forward to working with a whole bunch of executives from across the, the clubs. You know, it's a great industry, the club industry, and it's really important that leaders in any organisation, including the club industry, continue to upskill. And upskilling is something that I do every year as well. I dedicate uh, five days a year to, to go and do, do different courses, and it's really important. And this is an opportunity for those of you who can see the value in it to come along, and I'll see, look forward to seeing you at Cabravale Diggers. It'll be a great day and a beautiful club, and you should make sure, check your diary, Raf, to make sure you're there. I'm just um, I'm just trying to check my diary. Yes, you're just looking at your diary, Raf. We can hear you turning the pages. <laughs> it's not like when you've got the old paper diary, are you, Raf? No, no, no. I've got a computer here. It's fine. But I um, I know on the 7th of March, because I'm down for a wedding in Miami for one of my nephews, 
and um, I know it's around that time. And we were originally playing golf, but uh, I don't because if I was going from Moama to a golf trip, but I, it mightn't be on now because of with COVID and the way things are. So if it's not on, I'll definitely get to it. Of course, Wayne, I'm very excited to have you and Mike Whitney playing at my delayed 60th birthday, which will be a bit of fun. Raph, I don't know if you realise that Junior's in a band, but I've heard him play many times over the years and his energy's infectious. And you said earlier that he doesn't need alcohol. I remember being, I don't know if you remember this, Junior, I remember being at the Crow's Nest Hotel with Mark Geyer. You were jumping all over the stage as you do and you even tried to go down the splits from memory. And I remember MG leaning across to me and he said to me, are you sure that he doesn't do drugs or alcohol? Because where the hell does that energy come from? So it's actually ironic that many years later, MG himself has got his own successful gym and I'm in awe of his fitness too. So I was the only one that didn't keep up, quite frankly. No, it was it was all the drugs. It was all the big complex and vitamin C tablets that I was taking. They were just <laughs> amazing things. Now, here's a question. All those times we used to travel together and we did conferences together, do you still carry that big plastic vitamin case that you used to carry around? Oh, yeah. I think, I think it's um, – I think it's – yeah, yeah. You're fumbling over that answer, Junior. That's a yes. You're still carrying around your vitamins, aren't you? Yeah, but it's for the placebo effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all it is, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I always yeah. remember that tray of vitamins. I've never seen so many vitamins in all my life. And I don't know if you're going to remember this. It was so long ago, our first lunch together, you said to me that your son might turn out to be a better footballer than you were. And I remember thinking, you're kidding yourself, mate. You're not giving yourself enough talent. But uh, clearly talent is hereditary and Mitchell turned out to be quite a good player and he's off to play in England in 2022. Yeah, well, he's off to France. He's going to be living in France, playing in the English Super League, yeah. But uh, he's quite excited about it. He's had 15 years in the NRL and he's got a three-year deal to play with a team called Catalans, which are based at Perpignan, down in the Mediterranean. So if you're going to be playing in the English Super League, the best place to be based is down on the Mediterranean, just fly up the... England every second weekend to play games. And the Mediterranean's much better than England. And what a great excuse to visit, Junior. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And actually, the end of next year, too, there's a World Cup in England, which is just after the grand final for the English Super League. So hopefully, I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that that uh, they'll make the, the grand final. They, they actually made it this year as well. They made it and were beaten in the grand final. Hopefully, they'll get there again and be able to stay and watch the World Cup as well. Fantastic. So, Junior, one last question from me. Why do they call you Junior? Why do I call you Junior? I'm sure I've asked you this over the years, but I, I just, for the life of me, can't remember. Uh, yeah. When I first came into first grade, I was only 19, but it wasn't because I was young. They called me Junior. My first nickname for the first six months I was there was Flexi because I was a young bloke trying to put on weight and I was some bloke caught me flexing in front of the mirror after a weight session. So uh, they called me flex, started calling me flexi for a few months. And then we had a conditioner, our fitness guru that came to the club. His nickname was already flexi. And he was a lot older than me. He was like 20 years older than me. So um, he got flexi senior and I got flexi junior, which was too much of a mouthful. So that got shortened to he was senior and I was junior. So that's the reasoning behind me being junior. So Mitchell comes along. What do they call him? They call him Juju, which is short for Junior Junior. <laughs> so he's Juju. <laughs> uh, very good.
Well, well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Wayne, and you've had an enormous career and been so influential to a lot of people. So it's been wonderful being able to chat with you today on this session. But just want to wish you and your family all the best for Christmas and have a great new year next year. And uh, I hope I can catch up with the leadership courses myself. Thanks, Raf. Yeah, so thanks, Junior, for your time. And we might interview you again in 2022, but give our regards to Terry and the family and wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a happy and safe 2022. And thank you for your time, my friend. Thanks, Dan. It's been great chatting to you. Thanks for everybody for listening, tuning in, and all the best to, to all of you for Christmas and have a fantastic 2022. Yeah, so you can enrol in Junior's one-day elite leadership program hosted by Wayne on the 7th of March at Cabravale Diggers by going to our website. I'm almost prepared to give a money-back guarantee on that one because it's a sensational day and you need to experience to understand what I'm talking about. And Junior's just exceptional in his field. It's a great day. And, of course, Junior, if I don't see you before, I'll see you in April. We're having a dance at my 60th, so I'm really looking forward. That'll be a great night. And you'll be at that, Raf, so um, it'll be nice for the three of us to catch up if we don't catch up before that, but I'm sure we will. So, Raf, that wraps up our year. Thank you for your support, my friend. Thank you for co-hosting with me uh, and your support and involvement in Clubs Without Borders. And I'm looking forward to our podcast next year. And I wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas, my friend. Look forward to seeing you in 2022. Yep, you too. And, um, you know, you and Chris enjoy. And Nick, you know, and um, and your mum, you know, enjoy the time you've got with her and also with John. So you just have a wonderful time at Christmas and get some rest and recuperation over that period of time if you can so that you can come back refreshed for next year. So, folks, that's us for 2021. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all the questions that came in. And we will look at those questions next year. Quite a few of those questions sent around contracts, which I think I said before we would tackle this time, but we will be tackling that at the beginning of the year. Another question came in about people advising clubs who don't have the skill set in whatever it is that they're advising on. A growing problem in the industry, I am aware of it. But at the end of the day, can I just say that the obligation is on you if you hire me to do your due diligence. Just because I've been in the club industry for a long time doesn't mean that I know everything there is to know about the club industry. You know, I've got my skill set in certain fields, but I don't know everything. But I know there's people out there putting themselves out that they could do everything. It would be almost like any club hiring me to advise on IT. Can I tell you, other than the on-off switch, I've got no idea. But some people just have that skill set where they can get up and talk and they sound like they know what they're talking about. So the obligation is on you, the club. If I come out and tell you that I'm a gaming genius or I'm an IT genius or whatever it is that you need advice on, please do some due diligence and just make sure that I actually have the skill set that I'm telling you that I have. Because if I give you advice and it's wrong, clearly that puts you at risk. So there's been a lot of questions around that. But again, I'll throw that one back to Raf and I'll talk about this because I know Raf is aware of it as well. But the onus is on you to do your due diligence when you hire any consultant or anybody doing work with you at the club. Other questions that we've got came back to the Gus Warland interview and some people picked up on something I said about distancing myself from people in the industry. And I think what I said was I had made the conscious decision to distance myself from people in the industry who either gossip or are nasty or non-genuine or there's some people in the industry that just go out to hurt others or chase others. And I certainly made that statement. 
So I've just made the conscious decision that I've turned 60, I've got a limited amount of time left and I'm not going to waste my time with people that want to hurt others or don't have the perhaps, you know, the same thought process that I do about those sorts of things. So some people might be surprised at the people I've distanced myself with, but that's just my conscious decision. But it's amazing how many people picked up on that. Again, I lost some friends when I was younger. I lost my two best friends to brain tumors when I was younger. I've lost a lot of friends over the years and certainly losing my dad had a massive impact on who I am and how I see the remainder of my life. And I lost a girlfriend just weeks ago, which is why we've basically done this interview with Junior, which was a bit soft on rather than tackle anything difficult. A girlfriend of mine for her 60th birthday found out that she had cancer and passed away almost within three or four weeks. So I'm shattered and it's just another reminder that we're all here for a finite amount of time and we've just got to make the best what we can of the time that we've got. So I've just made a conscious decision to surround myself with people that are genuine and happy and kind and want to help others. Hence the Step Forward for Kindness Challenge, which is on the 27th of March. Thank you to all those clubs like Rafferty's and Club Tweed, Jared and Club Rivers and all these clubs have already put their hand up. But I'm going to be chasing clubs in the coming months to put your hand up. 100% of the proceeds is tax deductible, goes directly to Gus Wallen's Got You For Life. It doesn't come through me. There's no money, and anyone that knows me knows I'm very passionate about this, that the money goes directly to the charity. And if you, anyone that also knows me would know that I've done my due diligence and I know this work that Gus is doing is amazing and your money's going to be well utilised. And, again, we're helping people in that mental fitness space. So it's a great cause. But for all those people who I've read contracts for over the years, and I've said to you once before, don't worry about paying me, but uh, I'll need a favour one day. I'm calling in that favour. So that's the purpose behind that. And rather than presents for my 60th birthday, I just asked friends to donate to that sponsorship of that walk. So um, the only thing I've got to do now is get off my big fat rear end and get some training in so I can do my 60 kilometres, which is only now three months away. So on behalf of Raf and myself, we wish you all a very happy Christmas and a safe and COVID-free 2022. Thank you for your friendship and support. Thank you for your support of Clubs Without Borders. And I look forward to seeing you all in 2022. Take care, be kind to each other. Much love. Bye.